It's always a joy to be here um, with you guys. I've kind of spied a few times before and drifted in, and when you hosted district conference, that was a real blessing. So thanks for that. Just a little high, uh, just a little side note. Any people who went to Crown like back in the 1970s? Anybody in here remember Vernon Olson? Maybe you know his son, David Olson, who wrote the book American Church in Crisis and also was a pastor in this district for a good while. David's daughter is going to Taiwan to work with uh, Envision, and she'll be right alongside Jesse. So here she is, a girl from Plymouth that has connections with the Alliance, is going and tying in with what you guys are already doing there, too. So it's kind of cool how God is working around the world. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, this morning. But officially, I bring you greetings from our district office, Dr. Don Wiggins and Steve Hammer, um, Doug Parkinson, myself. We make up the main team there. We're assisted by Becky Morell. She's our church planner's wife in Buffalo. She's doing a great job. And also Deborah Peterson. Some of you might know Dr. Phil Peterson. It's his wife. And they've been church planters in the past and also pastors. And now he's a professor. She's a great assistant to me. So I really value that. So I bring you greetings officially from the district. If you're new, the district is not like some show on TV or anything like that. It's for us, it's Minnesota in the eastern part of Dakota. It's about 100 churches. About a dozen of those are church plants. Uh, about half of the church plants are multi-ethnic or, 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 or ethnic. We have a Spanish language. We have four Ethiopian congregations. We have a second-gen Hmong congregation, the church plant that just started up. We've got our newest church plants in Bloomington, started in Easter. Um, and I'm learning to speak Minnesotan. I'm talking really fast. Um, our newest church plant in, uh, in Bloomington is uh, multicultural as well. And it's housed in the Oxborough E-Free Church, which is kind of neat. And uh, they've opened up space for them. So it's exciting times in our district. But we're part of a larger family in the U.S. of over 2,050 churches throughout the U.S. Where the Alliance is over 125 years old. A rich history that's always been tied to missions and overseas we're in 80 different countries with workers in more than 60 countries. Um, and it's personally a joy to be part of the Alliance family. And uh, it's also a joy to know your pastor and Deanna and Joel and the whole team here. So you guys have a wonderful team ministering, if you don't know that already. Um, great people, great heart for God, doing a lot of the right stuff. Um, let, uh, let me start here first with just a, a, a little piece. A couple of weeks ago, I had a wonderful privilege to spend some time with Solomon. Um, Solomon has grown up in Syria all of his life. He, his family retreated down to Jordan for a while when he was a child. That's where he accepted Christ through an alliance worker, and his dad ended up pastoring down there, and he ended up pastoring in Jordan. Then he moved up into Syria, where he spent the rest of his life. Four years ago, he came home to visit his children. He's got three kids here in the States. He's got another one who's still pastoring in Syria. And uh, that's when the Syrian crisis started up, and the kids all said, Mom and Dad, you're too old. Don't go back. It's not safe. There's no reason to do so. Stay with us. So they stayed with their son in California who's doing Acts 1-8. Raid has started a ministry center much like the life center that you're used to in Sulaymaniyah. And there they're helping people with immigration. A lot of them are, they're all almost Syrian refugees, but a lot of Arab-speaking people, many, many, many of them are not believers. They show them care. They show them how to adapt to the American culture. 
They, they help work them through the legal process of getting established and getting bank accounts, getting all the stuff they need. And through that, people are coming to Jesus Christ. Raid is now looking at starting that center in multiple places around the U.S. And uh, there's a video clip that maybe sometime you'll get to watch that, was show, that both Raid and his brother um, were at council and he outlined some of this. I call this to your attention for your prayers. About 95% of all Christians have left Syria. Syria has been in crisis and it's impacted the world so much that you could take the tsunami in the Indian Ocean, Hurricane Katrina that's celebrating its anniversary now, and the earthquake in Haiti that wrapped up the U.S.'s attention for so long, you could combine all three of those tragedies And more people have been displaced and more people have been killed in the Syrian conflict than those three things combined. This, in our lifetime, is probably one of the biggest catastrophes that we're going to witness happening. And a lot of times it's not even on the news. We still have churches in Syria. Pastor Samuel's son is still pastoring in one of those churches. Last month, they baptized, I think it was 25 people. Nine were former Muslims that had come to faith recently and publicly said, I want to step forward in spite of all the persecution and the presence of ISIS all around us and say, my life is new in Jesus Christ. Nine former Muslims stepping out of the darkness into the light. So I show you a little bit of a map here. Um, Let's see I have a laser pointer? Oh, yeah. So you see Syria up in here. The explosion points are places where conflict has happened. The yellow boxes are where there's a known ISIS presence. And Pastor Solomon's brother, Edward, is still in there preaching faithfully every day. So as you hear a little bit on the news, and you're going to have to remind yourself more than you'll hear it on the news because the news is not touching this, this catastrophe. And you're going to have to remember to be praying for our brothers and sisters. You can see Iraq on the map. You can see Jordan. Right now, the president of Kama Services is in Jordan, in Amman, talking about how they can set up a worker to be working with Syrian refugees in Jordan because Jordan has opened its doors to the Syrian refugees. And many, many, many are opening their lives to Christ. It's really funny, too, because the president of Syria before, he didn't care if they evangelized Kurds. He figured they were outcast people. We don't care. You just can't evangelize Syrians. That would be proselytizing. Interesting. Then the war and the crisis hits, and Kurds scatter everywhere into southern Turkey, back into Iraq. And guess what our workers in Iraq are also doing? Working not just with Syrian refugees, But they're seeing some of the Kurds that have been touched by the witness that was opened up under an unfriendly regime before who considered these people lesser and they could be evangelized. And now those people are taking the faith back to the refugee camps when they're leaving the country as well. It's amazing how God is working around the world and we all get to be a part of it. I thank you for your prayers. I thank you for your partnership in, uh, the Suli, with the Suli team. And I thank you too for giving and supporting. You guys have really upped your giving and that is tremendous because without the financial component, we can't keep things going and keep things alive. So I, I share that with you just as a side note. Um, and just Paul, help me out. The clock says 10.57, we're done at 11.03? No, no, you got to Okay, okay. Um, all right, well, have you, 
ever been in a place where you're desperate, you're really longing to hear someone's voice? Have you ever been in that place where you want to hear the voice, the familiar voice of a person close to you? A friend, a parent, a sibling, a spouse. I have a good friend that when her, when her husband was suddenly killed, totally unexpected, accident, he had left a voice recording for her on her phone. She struggled for a long, long time. Is it okay for me to keep this? Because I just miss his voice. And she would play it over, and she'd cry. But she would reflect on the trust and the love and the unconditional acceptance that her husband had given her. And she'd listen to the voice again. Have you ever been at that point of longing, yearning to hear the voice that trust and time and grace and acceptance has built? It's almost sensory, almost like taste and smell. It's something that you long for, and when you hear that voice, it does something to you. It's a deep experience in every way. In many ways, that's the essence of the Christian life. And Joey, you did a great job on the worship set because almost all of these songs tied into being and being in the presence of God and not activism and just running out and doing. In many ways, this is the essence of the Christian life. Hearing, longing to hear, and responding to the voice and being overflowed with the love and acceptance and forgiveness that we have in that voice. A few years ago, I was reading a verse that was very common to me. I'd read it over and over and over, and after a while, you get kind of numb to that. And I was reading a verse with a friend. He was a new believer. He'd grown up here in the U.S. He'd travel all over. He's a military brat. His dad was in all kinds of different things, and he was on different bases and lived in a bunch of different places, but he really had never come to an understanding of Jesus Christ, never really knew what it meant to be a believer. So here he is, 30-something, and he comes to faith. And he has a connection with me because he liked jujitsu, and well, Brazil's into jujitsu. So Dave, you must know some things. I go, not at all. Um, but anyway, um, we started talking, and he said, "Dave, will you help disciple me?" So we started reading through John, and we got hung up on this verse that I'm sure is familiar to you. From John chapter three, we have John the Baptist introducing and preparing the way for Jesus Christ, and he talks about hearing the voice. Now, this is where John is talking about. That, that Jesus is coming and he's going to, to back away from the scene. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. And is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. And I was meeting with my friend Stephen. He goes, wow, that's really deep. And I'm going, oh, I've heard this a million times. Yeah, I know. John's being humble. And then Stephen talked a little bit more, and it caught me too. I finally got unnumbed to it. John is saying, wow. 
I heard his voice coming from way far away. I'm the first person in the room to hear his voice. And it's such a sweet sound. It is not anything competitive. It is not anything threatening. This is what God has called for to happen. And so I started digging on my own. And so then I chased that little rabbit trail for a while and came across a really neat insight. As I was studying and reading some things, one guy explained it, this part, that joy is mine and is now complete. To that joy is mine, I am now content. How many times have I and myself with my own mouth said, I am unhappy with my Christian life? Not directly. But if this would be that way, or if church was a little like this, or if I didn't have to do this, or da-da-da-da-da. And how many times have I heard other Christians and other people reflect a discontentment? That's not harmonious with what John is saying. That joy is mine. I'm so overfilled, so overflowing. I am content in his presence. I am content. Just hearing his voice, I haven't even seen him yet. The wedding hasn't even happened yet. And I am content. Wow, that overwhelmed me. So Stephen and I got stuck on this one for a long time. But as Christians, we often can fall into the trap of projecting our discontentment with our lives, with our families, with our church situations, our own spiritual growth which is actually just looking in the mirror and making a confession. And I've even heard us reflect our discontentment for God himself. Why would God do this to me? Where is God when I need him? That's not what John's talking about. That joy is mine. And I'm content. So I went, like I said, in a bunch of different rabbit trails. Culturally, have to step out of the box a little bit here. Sorry, I chase rabbit trails all the time. So if you watch the movie Up, there's a lot of squirrels in my life. But anyway, <laughs> in our own culture here, it is kind of hard to be not content. I live close to a Verizon store. I use a Verizon phone. They have all these little signs, those little yard signs. And my favorite one is, we have the latest device. And I grab my phone, I go, rats, I don't. I need the latest device. Everything in our culture says get more, get more, get bigger, get this, get that, get the whatever. They say, let me get the numbers right, this year we will probably spend about $2.2 billion as a country on Halloween candy. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really need more candy at our house. And the kids that come to our door, I know them pretty well because most of them are our neighbor kids. And they're not lacking for candy either. Not $2.2 billion worth of candy. We'll probably spend over $7 billion as a country, as people in the country. This is not government subsidized, by the way. $7 billion on Halloween this fall. Now, I'm not bashing Halloween. I'm just saying priorities, folks. If I'm content, that should even project to how I deal with holidays or how my life is run, or the things in my closet, or what I'm chasing and what I'm doing. So, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm not bashing that. I'm saying, where does this translate into our lives? It's in what we say, how we live out our faith, how we live out our daily lives with the people around us, 
even to the point, folks, where we can start to change culture by being countercultural. And we can be an influence and a light and a presence for God in multiple places. Also, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not saying, oh, be content, now we can all become spiritual couch potatoes and it's all just sit under the sun lamp and enjoy things and not do anything. Not at all. That would be mediocrity and nowhere in scripture are we called to a life of mediocrity. God has given you gifts. God has given you talents. God has given you abilities and he's asking you to use them to your fullest. But we need to be before we do. It's a life of being with him and in him before it's a life of doing things for him. And if we don't know this joy and contentment, I would venture to say we really can't serve him. Because we serve him out of the wrong motives or we serve him going in the wrong direction or ego is most definitely saying what I know God knows is the best. And what we're really saying is, God, you listen to me, and then I'll be content. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, I'm saying that we should grow. You should utilize your gifts. You should employ those talents and abilities. And we do need to constantly keep stretching ourselves. I think that's part of Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. We're making a difference, and we're living differently. And people will notice, and it might bring persecution. It might be a little uncomfortable. That's what happens when you go upstream. It might take more effort, more intentionality. It might take streamlining our lives. But it's what we're called to do. Not conform to the standards of this world. What also started to, to wrestle with me when I'm looking at this, and now I am content... And you all know this verse because you've probably all watched a good Western movie. And the old cowboy movies always make an allusion to Psalm 23 or Amazing Grace or both, right? So you probably know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. What's the next phrase? I shall not want. See the connection. What's he make us do? Lie down in green pastures and we sit by still waters. What a reflection on contentment. Is, are we doing anything? We're hearing his voice. Over and over and over we hear that analogy of sheep hearing the shepherd's voice. And God's providing for us. Trust, provision, deep acceptance. And we believe in him. We need to be. We need to listen. We need to hear before we do. Also, we know, be still and know I am God from Psalm 46. It's the worry-free existence that in Matthew chapter, I think it's 6, where we're told to look at the flowers. They don't worry. Look how beautiful they are. Maybe nobody's even going to see them before they wither and die, but God takes care of them. And the birds in the air and the coloration on them and the way they sing and the blackbirds, by the way, are already flocking. So fall is on its way. Joel, you're going to win out on this one. Um, but all that beauty, God takes care of them. Can you and I reflect or emulate that degree of contentment? As we ruminate on the things of God, and on the person of God, the very attitude of Christ, Philippians chapter 2, we begin to see, hear, and taste 
the existence with him from a different perspective. We become more free of self-centeredness. Like John, we discover the contentment as we hear and listen to his voice. You see, the focus in this text in John chapter 3 is not on John. He's the attendant to the bridegroom. Where's all the attention? It's on the bridegroom. We even sang that in one of our songs, by the way. The attention is on the bridegroom. Not only is the attention on the bridegroom and not on myself, so I'm sure not going to steal the limelight, it's not even on the party. Because in the midst of it, it's not like, oh yeah, I saw him coming. He says, I can hear him coming. I am so tuned in that I know his voice so well. That person I long to hear and that I'm so close to that means so much to me that it's tangible. When I hear his voice far away, I respond. Wow. Again, can we transpose that into our spiritual existence as believers? Does it fit? The focus is not on ourselves and on our own egos, but on the bridegroom, the center of the event, Jesus Christ. We are absorbed and awestruck by his presence and by his coming. This is a state that perpetually deepens. You're a church, a growing family after God's heart. Growing family after God's heart. When does that end? It keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And the doing just becomes automatic. Helping people get out of a financial, a financial tailspin helps everybody in Jerusalem and Judea. Helping Amenti and the branch and Lamb and Lion Fellowship downtown is affecting everybody. We just had a meeting on Monday and he gave praises about the church and how you guys are connecting. And he told that to four denominational leaders not from the Alliance that were there for a prayer meeting as we're looking at attacking the metro area with a church planting blitz in the next year or two. So your testimony and your doing and being and being and doing is reflecting even nearby. It's a state that perpetually deepens. It's what Psalms 23 is talking about, about hearing the shepherd's voice. And we do hear it and we do recognize it because it's intimately built in trust, dependence, love, the stuff that's built over time. It's not instantaneous. And when you come to that point, you can say, I am content. Just tell a real quick story. The, a few days ago, or well, a few months ago, um, I was in the airport, Sue was with me, we were on our way to council, so that's when it was, May, June. And the month before that, 30 Ethiopian believers had been beheaded on the beaches of Libya. There's a lot of Ethiopians working at the airport, and I noticed a lady with a crucifix, so I knew she was Coptic, not Muslim, and she didn't have a hajib on, so I figured I was safe. And I said, are you Ethiopian? She said, yes. And I said, my condolences for the 30 that were that were killed. I said, I have friends that are pastors and they led their churches to pray. I didn't tell her this part. They led their churches to pray not for the dead and the, and the families of the dead, but for the killers and their hearts to be softened for Christ. One pastor told me, it's because we know where the dying went. We don't know where the ones who did the killing are going. But anyway, I told her that I lamented that and three times she made this motion and she said, we're Christians, not Muslims. And uh, 
So as we finished up talking, I said, you know, I, I know this rattled the Ethiopian community. You're all close. And I'm praying with you and with many others. And she goes, well, of course. He died for us, so we would die for him. I thought, wow, I would not respond that way. I would have said, what are my self-rights? I would have said, what about this? What about that? How unjust? How this? How that? And she goes, of course. He died for me. We'd die for him. That level of, if you transpose that into John's testimony right here, I am content. This is the Christ. I can get off the scene now. He's coming. Absorbed in that person and who he is. He's saying, I know who he is. And it's sweet to know him and to know all that's wrapped around him. And he rests. And I think this awesome contentment is what allowed the Apostle Paul to say, for me to die is gain. And it pushed him on his missionary journey. I think for a lot of our international workers, there comes that time where there's a yieldedness to where you say, I may die here, I may never go home, or I may put myself in harm's way, and that's okay. That's okay. It may be part of what is in the lives of more than 170,000 people each year who are killed because they're believers. As we look up into, as we approach November and the day of prayer for the persecuted church, there's close to 200,000 people every year dying for their faith. So this isn't an oddity. This is becoming normal. I hear his voice in the room. I'll never forget, um, we have two kids. We were in Brazil for about 15 years. Uh, Kate was born here. She's all mixed up. I've talked about that before. Um, and, um, but Kate was born in Sheboygan. She's a packer. Um, she went to Brazil, spent 15 years of her life there, came back to Wisconsin, finished high school, came to Minnesota. Now she loves Minnesota. Um, Wow, poor girl. Minnesota, loves Minnesota. Packers fan. Oh, well. Um, and now she's a comma worker in Cambodia and uh, dealing with death every single day. She just got a, we just got a message from her this week that three people, one that's very, very close to her, just came into their clinic, all in terminal cancer, all dying. Everybody she sees, basically, is on their way to dying and death. It's a very poor, very remote place to be. But Kate was a little girl, and our son was born in Kutakiba. Um, that's a whole other story. But Ian was born there. And, and when Sue was pregnant with Ian, she was exercising, running, and swimming the whole pregnancy. And she would take Kate swimming with her. And so Kate would stand down here and talk to Sue's belly and sing songs and stuff like that. And when Ian was born, when he first heard his, her voice, you should have seen the look on his face. He looked and followed, looked for her voice. He'd never met her. He'd never heard his voice outside of, you know, Sue's belly. But he knew that voice. And he got this smile. And now they're, they're older. And Ian's off in college. And Kate's on the other side of the world. But he still likes to hear her voice. But that look on his face when he was a little baby. That look on his face for that first time he heard her. Just smiling, nothing else in the room existed. He was absorbed in contentment. Nothing else mattered, no one else existed. Of course, as soon as he got hungry, that all changed. But that moment, 
And I picture, I still see his face. And I still see that look on his face. And I think, Dave, that's you hearing the voice of Christ. Dave, that's part of why you want to be more than do. Because that fuels the doing. As we hear the voice of Christ, our perspectives change. Erwin McManus, if you want to read a great book, it's really, really deep and it's not very thick. Stand against the wind. In pursuing a life that is not about yourself, you find yourself living the life you've always longed for. What we long for is being in Christ. What John is talking about here and hearing the bridegroom's voice, and he'll, he'll be dead soon. He doesn't know that yet. It's that that motivates us. What we really long for, not the achievements, not the, I'll prove how spiritual I am because I'll be a missionary. It's in the being before the doing. In pursuing a life that's not about yourself, you find yourself living the life you've always longed for. In many ways, this is counterculture. Christian leaders today push name recognition. We make very secular type strategies to make church work. And you know what? It's been said over and over. We could probably do church without the Holy Spirit's presence and without the work of Jesus Christ around us and get away with it. And unfortunately, we probably could. And I think that's why the next generation is looking so much for authenticity. They're looking for something real. They're looking for a faith that really, really makes a difference. They're, making, they're looking for a faith that will bring that look onto their face. And they're not seeing it in church. So it's a call for us all as church in general in America to come back and listen to. In many ways, it's countercultural. It's about our agenda and about what we want, not about him. But scripturally, we're called to live as servants to live for one another, to care for the ungodly or to the unlovely and to serve the master wholeheartedly. We're called to live a life of readiness right now. That's the imminency of Christ's return. That's what motivates us to tell other people. It's what motivates us to know him and live in sanctification now in a life that's so pure and genuine and so interesting that it will call your unbelieving neighbor and your unbelieving uncle to say what's going on in your family. It's that kind of a life. We're hearing his voice come down the hallway, living in this state of expectancy and readiness. It motivates us to live sanctified lives. It motivates us to tell others. It's the joy that we find in Christ. Why wouldn't we share it with someone else? It's what brings us to the Great Commission. Of course, as you go, you will make disciples here, there, and everywhere. You will do this. And you're empowered besides that. Wow, can't lose. You know, there's an immense joy being talked about here by the Apostle John. Or by John the Baptist, I'm sorry. It's a kind of immense joy that causes us to look past our prejudices and our own limitations. It's the kind of joy that caused Philip to tell his racist brother, Nathaniel, about Jesus Christ. And he says, what? Can anything good come from Nazareth? He goes over and he meets Jesus. And it totally breaks down his prejudices and barriers. And he goes running away saying, wow, you got to know about Jesus. It's the kind of faith and relationship that causes a Samaritan woman that says, 
why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman? Why are you a Jew talking to me? It causes her to overcome all of her prejudice and her racism and step across and tell all of her friends, you got to come talk to this Jew. He's told me everything about my life and there's something there. This is the kind of joy, this is the kind of contentment that causes us to develop, see Christ develop our lives and step beyond the normal limitations that impact our lives and keep us from being vibrant witnesses or hinder the glow, the light in our own lives. It's real. It's what John talks about. It's real. It's why lives are changed. It's why my friend Stephen, his life changed, and soon his wife Britt's life changed, and he's telling people at work, and he's even in his jiu-jitsu and, and full contact martial arts stuff saying, you know what, there's aspects about this, the environment and some of the people that I either need to change or have an influence over, and he's taking it beyond himself. It's why new churches are planted. It's why workers are sent overseas to places like Taiwan and war zones like Iraq. The joy is real, and the contentment is real, too. What about you? Are you listening for and ready to recognize the voice? And are you living in a life of overwhelming contentment? in a state of overwhelming contentment because you are listening to the voice of Jesus Christ in a life fully surrendered to him. Another psalm, Psalm 131. I invite you to read it with me. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child withers mother. Soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore.